So this morning, I'm going to do something different. I'm not returning to the book of Psalms. That's okay, Doug. And uh, because I want to do something based on the fact that I know that question and answer time, and I'm not trying to copy John MacArthur because he's doing a Q&A tonight. I know that. But I wanted to do a question and answer time for a few reasons. Uh, the first is because as time has gone on, it seems as if um, more and more we have new faces in the group, we have new people here, and I would like to get to know you by the questions that you ask and the things that are on your heart. And so because of that this morning, I want to have a question and answer time. Again, um, obviously, I am not John MacArthur. I know that's shocking. Uh, but uh, what? I thought you were his son. No, I just look like his son. Uh, you don't know that story, do you? So I had, a, I had a guy come up to me one time years ago, and he gave me an envelope. And he said, just thank you so much for yesterday. And I, I've never met the guy before. And I thought, that's, that's, that's interesting. So I looked at the envelope, and it said, Matt, Matt MacArthur. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm not Matt MacArthur. He's sitting over there. You can see him right there. And he goes, oh, I'm so sorry. And uh, he, I, did a, I was his caddy yesterday for a golf tournament, and I, I could have sworn I'm going, no, no. So I grew a mustache so I don't look like Matt. Uh, no. But so, so some people confuse that. But anyway, now I want to do a question and answer. We're going to return to the Psalms. Uh, next time I preach, next week we're going to have Ben Trowbridge come, and that's going to be a blessing for all of us. And then we're going to be back in Psalm 139. And the reason I say 139, because some of you might think, well, didn't you do 139 already? Yes, I did. But uh, after preaching through the Psalms and preaching what we've just seen of 39 and 90, some of the, the themes are so similar, I wanted to branch off and do something different. And though I've already preached that Psalm, I don't think I preached it in such a way that I could cover the things that now I want to say with more time given to me. So I'll do at least a two-part series on that. It's a very important psalm. It's a very personal psalm. Uh, and I've studied it all week but came to the conclusion that if I'm going to really do this right, uh, I will do a Q&A today and then come back when we have uh, psalms again. So Ben will be next week, but I'm here. So what is this, what's the format of something like this? The format is to ask questions, obviously, that uh, you really are curious about. Not something that you can find in the MacArthur Study Bible. That's uh, easy. I could just tell you what page to turn to. And it's, it's more life application. It's more how do you reconcile situations in your life. I want to be, if you will, a father to you this morning and to think through issues with you about what's on your heart and what you're really genuinely curious about, about Grace Community Church, about how we do ministry and so forth. So I'm here for you today. So instead of speaking at you, I want to speak to you, and I want to do that in this format. So we're going to have a microphone that's going to go around. You could, if, you don't, um, if you don't have, uh, she has a question already, so if you could rush over there like a gazelle. There you go. And uh, <laughs> kind of like a gazelle. It was, well, he's, he's not a gazelle, so obviously that wasn't fair. So, uh, but, but good, <laughs> good effort. Uh, more like a, a, a young deer. Okay. <laughs> so first, just your name. Um, my name's uh, Ashley. Ashley. I come from China. Uh, I have this question in a long time, uh, so confusing. So uh, I hope I can, I can explain well in English. So the lady, Lang Hula, uh, she said to King Kong, 
they went to the other country and then she used a way, rope to let them out. And then she lied. She mm. told her country people they, she didn't see them. Mm. But to save those two people, she was so brave. And then I wonder, I was confused. How do I use her knowledge in this world? So balance Yes, I actually understand your question. Uh, <laughs> good job. Um, this question just came up yesterday. I teach a preaching lab, and in the preaching time, one of the men came up to me and followed me actually to my car, which always is in, an example of how serious it is. Uh, and the only reason it was serious is because he was preaching on this text <laughs> today, so he wanted to have an answer to it. And the question was, uh, as he was preaching through Genesis, it seems as if in the birth of Moses that the um, daughters of, of um, Israel, the, the, the Hebrew women who had gone to the Pharaoh and had uh, told him that the reason that they were not able to kill the firstborn males that were born was because that the Hebrew women were giving birth too rapidly and that they couldn't stop it. But the verse right before and Exodus says, I said Genesis, and Exodus says that um, they were fearing God. So they're fearing God, but they say that it's because of the fact that they um, are surprised at the quickness that Hebrew women can give birth. So it seems as if they have lied. And so the question that this young man gave me was, how do I preach that? How do I preach about these godly women who fear the Lord, but the context seems to present that they're lying. And that's the same situation I think you're talking about, Rahab, and, and with the, the same conclusion as do... Um, well, first of all, my, my emphasis with him was don't preach what's not there, what is there. And if she, uh, if the implication is that the, the uh, maids there, the mid-servants, uh, the midwives, I should say, uh, didn't tell Pharaoh the total truth, how are we to understand that? Which goes back to the whole situation of if a Nazi came to you and you were hiding Jews in your closet and they said, do you have Jews here, would you, and you've heard this situation before, would you tell them because you want to be honest that there are Jews or would you lie and save their lives? So this is something that is a, a, a typical kind of hypothetical situation that we come across. And I think the answer really boils down to uh, the fact of, do you trust God? In the scripture, it is not telling us what always you should do in narratives. Narratives are not prescriptive. They're not telling you that this is how you should act. Narratives are descriptive, telling you this is what happened. So does that make sense? So sometimes you are told in scripture, let's say with the epistles uh, in the New Testament, and sometimes also in prophecy, this is what the Lord has said. So it's a command. It's, it's, not a, uh, it's not a hypothetical. But there's other times where you'll see, for instance, David, who uh, has slept with Bathsheba and caused great sin and great iniquity, and even his first child died. So that's not an example of what believers should do, obviously. That's a description of what happened. You see that a lot in the book of Acts as well. So 
Is it true that believers lie? Yes, they do lie sometimes. Are they called to lie? No, they're called not to lie. But can God work providentially through the lie? Of course he does, because he works through providentially all kinds of sin. But is that an encouragement to you to lie? No, it shouldn't be. So we're dealing with human beings who at the very core Uh, are susceptible and vulnerable and not always faithful to the Lord as they should be. Perfect obedience is impossible. But that example in Scripture of lying or of disobedience on any level is not a prescription for you to do the same, but just to note it and to sit there and, and I think to be in awe of the fact that even though they lied, God still worked miraculously through that. So again, it's not an indication lie and God will take care of it for you. That's not what it's saying. But it is saying that God is greater than our lies. And if you do lie, that God at times has in history past uh, proven himself always to be faithful regardless of the faithlessness of his servants. So I hope that helps. So when you read that, how are you supposed to understand that passage? You're to understand it that, yes, the in, indeed, it seems as if she has lied, but God still triumphed through that. It's not an indication of what you should do. It's an indication of what was and what happened. So you can't, And that's what I love about the Bible, honestly, that it's so honest. It's honest about uh, the, the, the foibles of people. It's honest about situations that you would think uh, would make the Bible be rated R, that make the Bible unsavory at times because the things that people do, uh, the murder, actually, when we get to Psalm 139, what you're going to find out is, David, in the midst of that psalm, after extolling omniscience and omnipresence and talks about God's incredible gift in his life, he then says, slay the wicked. I hate them as you hate them. And so is that a prescription for us to hate the wicked? We're going to find that out in two weeks so you can come back to get the answer later. But again, we see these things, and the Bible's just being honest. That is exactly what he prayed. Does that have a stamp of God's approval? Well, you have to read the context, and you have to know what is revealed is uh, God hates liars. It's one of the things that he can't stand. He, he, can't, he does not want liars and deceivers uh, in his midst. But does God work through that? Yes. It's not a, it's not a ticket to get out of trouble by saying, well, uh, Rahab lied, and, and the midwives lied, and so I can lie. No, because it's not a guarantee. It's not an axiom that says, if you lie, God will cover it. But it is an indication, really, of God's grace, is what it is. Unmerited favor towards those that don't deserve it. I hope that helps. That's my best shot. (laughs) But does that work? Does that help? Because that's the truth. I mean, that's what it is, okay? Now, someone else is going to talk about why red in the the scarlet that she had. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So, yes, yeah. Hey, Tim. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was here in this pulpit just a couple of years ago, and I was in his um, Doctor of Ministry class uh, listening to him and learning from him. He's a brilliant man. I love listening to his preaching. He is so gifted. He's so different than so many other preachers. He has an incredible accent that we're all greatly attracted to. 
if you have a Scottish brogue, it just makes you seem smart and intelligent and, and more grassroots and blue collar. But uh, he also does a lot of things that I think in the application of his life and the application of what he says sometimes goes off the mark. And, and, and again, I love him. He's, he's a great man. He's not, he's not a, a small man. He's a great man in my mind. However, he has done things in the past through application. You can trust his teaching, I will tell you, but his application sometimes is skewed. And this is something that I think we all have to be aware of as we grow older, uh, because I think as he becomes more of a grandfather, and he's actually addressing a grandmother, giving counsel about, if you don't know the situation, um, he was asked about whether or not it was right for a Christian to attend a transgender wedding. I believe it was transgender. It could have been homosexual. I wasn't sure. But regardless, either case, would you attend a, a wedding like that? Uh, his answer was yes, that you should, that it would be a testimony. Uh, and yet, when we spoke to him, um, and he, he, his answer was that it was an individual case-by-case situation, and that in that case, because of that grandmother, he could give that advice. So the bigger question, I think, is um, what does it represent? What does a wedding represent? Does it represent a time of celebration and, and affirmation and approval, which most people would say, yes, I'm coming to the wedding because I have approved. Rarely anymore do you ever go to a wedding where you will hear uh, the pastor say, is anyone, you know, anyone here objecting to this? And you, in the old days, you would have someone say, you know, yeah, I, I do object. You know, that's, uh, <laughs> that's my wife. No, I'm kidding. And, <laughs> you know, but, you know, there, there's, there's things that they say. And it used to be that if you ever saw uh, in the old days, there, even movies where people are racing to the, to the wedding to stop the wedding because I'm in love with the girl that you're about to marry and I don't want her to marry you and so forth. That doesn't happen anymore. Uh, we, we've taken it out of our sermons. So when you go to a wedding, you're, uh, you're looking at it with approval and affirmation and you're saying, I, I approve of this. Well, a Christian in that context, as a general principle, could not be at a wedding like that. You could not be attending something like that. I have actually been asked to do weddings like that, not necessarily for um, uh, transgenders, but folks where you can even go to a Catholic, a Roman Catholic, or to some people who are not married, or excuse me, are not Christians and want to be married, or that one is a Christian, one is not a Christian. Uh, to be honest, from my perspective, I have done wedding ceremonies for unbelievers who are both unbelievers, uh, my cousin and her husband, and I did that, and I was with them, and I explained the gospel to them beforehand, and we had a, a time knowing that they don't believe, but wanting to make sure that they knew what marriage meant, whether or not they embraced that was one thing. Uh, however, I would never marry an unbeliever to a believer because, again, the Bible is clear, First Corinthians 7, only in the Lord. But when it comes to the issue of uh, people who are unbelievers, who are transgressing, not in just normal sin, but abnormal sin, and what I mean by that is homosexuality, transgenderism is a, is a great offense to God, not just a regular two believers that actually happen to be honoring the covenant of marriage by actually getting married. Uh, for unbelievers to do that, they're unbeknownst to them, are coming together under the umbrella of what symbolizes the church in Christ. They may not know that symbolism, they may not understand it, but God 
not approves of marriage, period. But marriage to transgenders, uh, to homosexuals, would be something that I could not approve. I would never give people counsel to do that. And yet what Alistair Begg did, and again, he said it was a case-by-case situation. He saw a grandmother's heart that was breaking, and she didn't want to lose them, and he told her to do that. So I think it was... Uh, in my in my opinion, and and it's the opinion of the elders of Grace Church, the pastors on staff. We talked about this the other day, uh, that that would have been um, the wrong counsel not to tell them to do that. So, how do I feel about him? I think he's a wonderful man who's been short sighted in many ways. Uh, years and years ago, he actually you may not know this, but because I've been a part of a acting world in the past um, and still teach acting. I found out one time that Alistair Begg was in a movie. I don't know if you know about this. And so um, I love Alistair Begg. I was listening to his series on Ecclesiastes as I was going through Ecclesiastes. And so I was kind of shocked and surprised. But what was more shocking was the story around that was he was on an airplane with his son who was pursuing acting and they were presenting him a part and it didn't work out. But instead they presented Alistair the part of a caddy, a caddy along with uh, the lead character was Jim Caviezel, who was the, char- the man who played Christ in The Passion of the Christ, and he was doing a, a real-life part of a golfer named Bobby something. I can't remember the name. You can Google it and find it. But um, he had a real-life caddy, and, this, and he was going to play him. Well, the only problem was this real-life caddy was known as the cussing caddy. He was a guy that was just foul-mouthed. And so to play the part of a foul-mouthed caddy, guess what? You've got to be foul-mouthed. You have to say the language. And so to see him do that really threw me, really shocked me. And actually, I didn't listen to him for a few years because of that. I just didn't believe that that would be right. For for a pastor who was maybe in a small town somewhere in the Midwest, I could kind of understand perhaps, and I would think it would be short-sighted and still wrong. But for a man that's noted uh, all over the country and the world as a leading evangelical, I thought it was a, a very sad testimony. So we're all sinners. We all have blind spots, and I think that happens to be a blind spot for him. So we had him on the docket for Shepherd's Conference, and the decision was just made. There's just too much explanation. It would be such a distraction. It's not a, a slight against him. We love him. We don't approve of what he did, but it would just be every single time he spoke, it would be the barrier between what he said. That's why it's so important to be above reproach, because if someone has something against you, uh, and that can stick, meaning that the, the accusation against you people know of, it blurs your authority in the pulpit. I know we don't have any authority as a man, but as a pastor, your pastoral privilege of preaching is marred, and people cannot receive you in the same way that if a man comes to the pulpit and says, I'm divorcing my wife, and I want everybody to know that, and it's not for abandonment or adultery, but we just aren't reconcilable anymore, that that all of a sudden makes the people, the congregation, uh, question his morality, question his understanding of Scripture. It's not just theology, it's life application, and so that is something that you wouldn't do. So we, again, I love him. I loved him when he was here, literally on this pulpit. Well, he wasn't on it. He was, you know, leaning on it. But uh, <laughs> that would be a weird thing. <laughs> Did you hear that Alistair Bagg stood on the pulpit? But, uh, but he was so artful and so wonderful. And he's such, he's a, really a genius of a guy, the way he interacts with 
um, not only poetry and Shakespeare, and then he'll quote a little bit of the Beatles, which I don't think is a great thing, but still, uh, he's so good at that, but the choice he made did mar his reputation enough to where we couldn't have him. Hope that wasn't a... I mean, I do love him. I love what... I've learned so much from that man, but I'm also learning from him in a different way now of what not to do. Yeah. Yes. Your name is Othello? Uh Yes. Okay. There's a microphone right there. Yeah. Yeah. But when you read that when Saul was desperate, he actually he actually went to the wicked witch of Endor That's right. for counsel. He was like the spirit of Samuel, I think. Yes. To be brought up. Yes. Yes, thank you for bringing the easiest questions in the Bible to me. <laughs> I think he knew Rahab, so I'm not positive. No. Um, now, this is another example, and it's a good question because when I first read it, too, when I was a brand-new believer and I came out of a New Age background, so I was a New Age um, mysticist that used to meditate two hours a day. I don't know if people know this, and uh, it, was, it was my belief that I could connect with God. And so I was a very spiritual person, but not a Christian. And, of course, that meant that I was lost. I wasn't going to heaven. I didn't have Christ as my Savior. Christ was one of many different ascended masters that I could uh, meditate to. And so when I was saved out of that, and then I read that in the Bible, my first reaction is, just like you, like, what? How can that happen? And again, to go back to what I said earlier, uh, the Bible, in, in narration, I want you to note that when you're reading the Bible, is this narrative, first and foremost, because if it's telling a story, it's truthfully telling a story, but everything that it's truthfully telling is not the truth. Let me make that clear. So I can tell you a truthful story about how uh, I lied to someone, but my lie obviously is not true. And the Bible also tells us the story about how this witch of Endor um, has uh, conjured up Samuel. First and foremost, that is what happened. That is what is seen, but we don't know what that means, and we don't know uh, whether that was a a figment of his imagination, if that was um, a, a, um, um, a delusion, if that was, a, he did see Samuel. Was that Samuel? We don't know if that was Samuel. All we know is that she conjured up something for him that appeared to him as Samuel, and he was definitely in sin to make that request, and we all know how it ended up for him. Uh, He was an unfaithful king. He was unfaithful, and actually, some people would say, even threw himself on the sword, so he was a suicide victim as well. Uh, Some people don't even believe he was actually even a believer. Uh, Again, taking the totality of his life, looking at Judas the same way, when you look at his life, but he ends in the way he did uh, as a son of perdition, the implication there being is he's in hell. So when we look at that, I think, Again, and it's a very, very good question. In fact, I, I applaud you, and I applaud everyone who reads the Bible with questions. 
If something is shocking to you, it should be shocking to you. Don't sit there and go, well, I guess I just don't understand that and move on. It's meant to stop you in your tracks and to make you think. I was just talking yesterday about an episode in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 43, when Jesus is speaking to a, a man that he is delivering from a demon, and it says that he sternly, and if you get into the Greek, it meant his nostrils were snorting. He was sternly reprimanding this man not to tell anybody that this is what happened. And yet the man went out and told everyone what happened. And because of that, Jesus did not go into the area. So even then, I said to the men uh, teaching them yesterday just about uh, what to look at in Scripture, I said, that should stop you in your tracks. Jesus sternly? When have you ever heard of Jesus sternly reprimanding anyone other than a Pharisee or a Sadducee? So that should make you stop, make you think, make you scratch your head. Why? And why is a great question. In the same way, when you read narrative like that, and of course that was a narrative as well, that you would stop and sit there and go, what is going on there and why is it that that would happen? Because I know it's wrong. Well, he sinned. He was sinning in what was wrong. I know that uh, Hebrews tells us that you die once and then comes judgment. So for him to be coming back from the dead because of a witch and their incantation to bring him back, that doesn't square with what we understand about the truth. So in some way that happened, but why that happened and what that meant is uh, not according to what God has told us is the truth. It must be a lie, and then you have to make implications and draw conclusions. Um, Does that make sense? So what makes sense sometimes is when it doesn't make sense, stop, pull the car over. I mean, don't be reading it on your app, but (laughs) it's it's a metaphor. Uh, Pull over, stop, and sit there and start to think through why. Why is this happening? So... Uh, if you read commentaries on that episode, that's what most uh, evangelical commentators will say, that, of course, he was in sin to do that. The fact that he would even go to a witch, uh, which I think sometimes people uh, find a parallel with Christians actually dealing with astrology. I think sometimes you'll see a parallel where people will sit there and say, I know I'm a believer but, you know, according to the world, I am a Sagittarius, and so I'm just going to check out my chart to see how my life's going to go today. Uh, that's, that's evil. Uh, that's not to be done. Again, um, I was born in December, but when people ask me what my sign is, I always tell them the cross. Because that starts the conversation, because I don't think that way, nor does it have any, <laughs> the gospel's my sign. So, but good question, but was Saul in sin? Absolutely. Was the witch deceiving him? Absolutely. And how do you explain what happened? I think it was an evil incantation that drew up something from the bowels of hell, if you ask me, and shows you the power of supernatural darkness. You know? Yes. Okay. with all his soul and with all his might, of 
according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. However, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger burned against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And shortly after this, he was beheaded by Aaron and Nephi. And she was just wondering, why would God allow that to happen if he followed him so profusely? Hmm. However, well, I think it's, um, I don't know if you were with us last week, but we, we talked about something called um, the, the, the result of, the consequence of, I called it the echo of iniquity. And the echo of iniquity is not in King Josiah's place. However, uh, consequences do fall. We're all going to have consequences of our sin. He was a king at eight years old. That's why I named my first son Josiah after that exact reason, because I want him also to know that he is the king, Josiah is, of repentance. He's the king. No, no king has ever repented before or after like he did. However, there were certain um, things in motion that could not be reversed. And so though he did wipe out the high places, the, the places where they were worshiping um, false idols, he, he, he reinstituted, um, I don't know if you know the story, I'm sure you do, but he actually found the Ark of the Covenant, I mean, they, they found, excuse me, the Book of the Law, and the Book of the Law, when it was exposing everything to Josiah about what was required that he had not done as a king, but now because he knew, was able to do, um, all of Israel was changed because of the great leadership of that man. However, um, there are repercussions of sins, even repercussions of the fathers. There are, not because King Josiah, it doesn't state in the text, died because of his own sin, but because there's consequences to just the sins of our fathers and the sins of even the nation. So um, we have to sit there, and I think it, in my mind, it holds us in a holy kind of tension. And the holy tension is this, and this now applies more to our lives, and that is you may be a believer and then have had a season of unbelief, had a season of living in such a way where you were not obedient to the Lord, you were straying from the Lord. Usually you see this in people when it comes to relationships. You, you marry someone that's not a believer or you're caught up in, in sexual impropriety or there's just a, a slew of other things that can happen or you lie or you cheat. And then there's this moment where God is gracious and opens your eyes to the fullness of your sin, and you repent. And yet, though you've repented, and though you are now walking with him, there might be some very horrible things that happen, and there might be some results of your sin that cannot be, well, I shouldn't say cannot, that will not be stopped because of God's great wisdom. So you could go all the way back to Job, where Job did nothing to incur all of the damage that he suffered. Yes, he did eventually complain against God, and so there was sin in his life, but there was no sin in the way that he approached the event, because God says he was above reproach, he, he feared God, he was the most above reproach man in his generation, and yet God still allowed him to be almost destroyed to the skin of his teeth. So I think it's a warning to us to sit there and say, whether you're talking about King David, who was a man after God's own heart, but still fell and still repented, and yet still 
had to um, lose a child, whether it's um, King Solomon who was instructed by God about exactly how he should live his life and what it is, the life of a king, and yet he strayed in his life. You know, the Song of Solomon is his first wife, if you ever read that book, but then he had 700 and concubines as well. And you see at the end of his life in the book of Ecclesiastes, he repents all of it, but he still had to suffer through that. So I think, I, I don't, I think there's an image in our mind that we get off scot-free if we repent. Um, and in some people's lives, that may be what happens. So you repent of that, and your life is now blessed in such a tangible way that it's almost as if people forgot the kind of person you were before. And I'm talking about repentance as a believer, you know. But there also are indications that um, that is not always the case. God is not a formula that we have to um, put in an ingredient and he gives us the exact output that we want. He's not an equation that we can work. So I think when you read something like that, what I take away from the story is he was a great man who I pray if I was revealed that kind of information that I would turn like he turned. But at the same time, there are extenuating circumstances in your life to where sometimes I see people saying, why God, why me? And I think sometimes you just need to look back at your life and say, well, why not me? Uh, why, why wouldn't God allow that? I'm, I'm a broken sinner. I don't deserve even the grace that I've been given. So I think it is a tension, um, but I know it's hard to understand. And again, it goes back to the same point earlier. When you read something in Scripture and maybe this is the main point of what we've said so far, is that you're supposed to question it. You're supposed to look at your life and go, why? I remember the very first time in Scripture when I was reading it for the first time as a new believer that I came across God calling himself jealous. And I remember that was just so mesmerizing to me because I had been a jealous man most of my life, and it had really, really caused a lot of injury in my life and every relationship with every, um, you know, uh, girlfriend that I, I thought I had. And I, <laughs> yeah, I wanted to say it that way, thought I had. And, uh, and it was horrible. It was a horrible thing. And then I finally get saved and my heart is cleansed and I'm reading the Bible and God says, his name is Jealous. And I'm thinking, What? How can that be? And it took me a while to think that through, to think that, well, my jealousy is a sinful jealousy. He has a right to be jealous because he's a righteous God, and, and I am a fallen man who thinks I deserve this or that, and he's a, a holy God that does deserve that, and so his, whole, his, his jealousy is righteous. So it takes time, but that's why, and I'm doing a separate thing real quick here. As you read through your Bible, be very, very careful not to check off boxes and not to sit there and go, well, I read that today, I read that today, that's the next thing, good. I read through the whole Bible in a year. If you read it slower, you will actually benefit from it more. If you read it contemplatively, meditatively, and not just to try to get through the Evelyn Wood speed reading course, but that you're actually trying to think through it um, with your with your whole person, you're going, to come to some, you're going to come to some gray areas that need investigation and prayer, and that, I think, is why it's been presented to us in that way. Yeah, gazelle, quickly. <clears throat> Great. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
very sheltered. And even like hearing a first order language just hurts my soul. So <laughs> if I meet any of my friends like where I work at right now, I ask like, if, just I ask one thing, please do not curse in front of me. You can curse with your friends, sure, but as long as I'm not around. And some of my friends there are really like, they respect that. And I'm mm. really grateful for that. Mm. First of all, you have nothing to be scared of. She has something to be scared of, just so you know. Um, well, that's a great question, and I think more people deal with that now because the culture is, like, so secular. It's not just even religiously secular, but it's just secular on every level, uh, more than it's ever been. And if you were in the first hour, you kind of heard where the world is going and what's happening, and that all makes sense to us, that this would be where somebody feels unrestrained to be able to sit there and and claim their Lord as Satan, which I have no doubt that that is true. So, but the fact that she even said it the way she said it, here's, here's I think, a good way to think about this. Um, you're right. You're not hired to share your faith there. Uh, you're in a workplace. She's actually going against her work covenant, if you will. She should not be doing that. And yet, I could say that if you did say something like that, if you did say, uh, you know, um, I don't even know what you would say to that because it's so shocking in the beginning. I think I would just store that note and try to follow up with that gal at lunch and to sit there and say, hey, I, I just want you to know when you said that, you know, that was that was very, very disturbing to me because uh, – I, I am a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who has actually uh, conquered and will conquer finally Satan. And the Lord that you're trusting in is a Lord that's leading you to damnation. And I, I, the fact that you had pride in that just uh, crushes my heart because I do not believe you understand what you're saying or where you're leading. Something that's showing love and compassion, not to be quick-witted. I'm so glad you didn't come back with some witty remark that you could have. Uh, it's better to sit there and, and really think about the implications for that young woman. I, to transition from that just for one second, I, I tell people all the time who go out and evangelize, and they're, they're so quick to, to spread the gospel, and of course you should do that. But I always tell people that you should, whoever you're speaking uh, with and you're telling them about the truth of the gospel, be willing 
to disciple that person if they come to Christ? Are you willing, as you're just telling them, kind of sometimes from a defensive point of view, of Jesus is Lord, he was perfect, he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross for the sins of the world, for all who would believe. And as you do that, and the, you kind of, okay, that's, I did my evangelical kind of duty, now I'm on to the next person. Are you really willing, if that person says, tell me more, to actually stop and say, okay, forget what I'm here at the train station to do. My focus is now just now putting you under my wing and actually ministering to you and discipling you if the Lord should lead you to the truth. So first of all, it's not just a a willy-nilly thing. It's something where I actually am going to pray for that woman. I'm going to pray and actually think that I want to be loyal because the Lord tells us that we need to be submissive to our employers, even those who are unreasonable, First Peter. And so I'm going to honor my employer. I'm going to find a time that's appropriate to speak to her. And then I'm going to pray even before I speak to her that I don't want to come off witty or better than her or, uh, or in any way condescending to her. But if you could even prepare your heart with brokenness because you realize that this woman at this point without God's intervention is hellbound, then you enter into that conversation and what a great conversation that would be and how loving that would be and tell her the truth and tell her that she's deceived and tell her that there is hope in Christ, but there's no hope in Satan. So, but that's going to happen a lot, I fear. And I think that you're, the, you're doing the right thing. People have lost their jobs so many times, come to me over the years and said, I can't believe it. I, I was, uh, my boss said something and I just read him the right act and he knows exactly how I feel about you know, uh, Christ and the Bible and everything and they got fired and so I'm, I'm living righteously. And I'm going, I, I, don't, I wouldn't consider that living righteously. I would consider that you actually disobeying your employer and not taking the time to actually go to the side and really talk to that person. You decided on your own time uh, to share almost out of a, a heart of, of pride. So just be cautious, but don't let that woman go. The fact that God has placed you in that environment to be with her. I've never heard that. No one's ever said that to me. I've been a Christian a long time. I've never heard that. So I, that, that would be something if the Lord lets that cross my path, I've got to deal with that. And so I think you have a new assignment, you know? Well, my brother-in-law, who is a homosexual, is a sweet guy, but it was really, he named his dog Nero. And he knows who we are, and he knows what we do. And, you know, I, I have let that go. I don't even, I go, so you named your dog Nero after the, the one that persecuted Christians and burned him at the stake? Is, is, that, what, is that what you did? Um, so I'm trying to pretend like that didn't happen because he already knows the gospel, and he says he doesn't want to hear it anymore. But believers can be overtly offensive. They're testing you. And the fact that we haven't reacted, actually, uh, through restraint, because at home, of course, we say all the things that we were going to say. But <laughs> and if he comes to me, I'm going to take that dog and, you know. <laughs> Nero is missing. I wonder why, you know. <laughs> but, you know, then he would just get another dog named Satan, like you said. And, you know, so. But I think it's, I think it's an important time to tread lightly, be strong in your faith, be prayerful. And I think that's a holy, divine appointment. I really do. One more, and then our time is up. Yeah. He's, uh, there you go. Uh, this young woman. Um, my name is 
Very appropriate question, and that uh, you you obviously don't know this, but that's happening in this room already. That we have loved ones that uh, we have lost, and uh, even some recently, who are clinging to the Lord, but not positive in what it is was their reaction. And I've told people this uh, before. There was an incident many years ago, not to get graphic, but there was a, a lady in uh, our church who came to church. She was very, very distraught, and uh, she had just found out that um, a family, a whole family that they had been on vacations with, that um, the man who was the husband who had, they had a divorce, and he had decided to take the life of all of his family. So he had, he had murdered them all, and it was in the news. It was in Simi Valley many years ago, and she was just distraught, and her only concern, of course, other than the fact it was just horrific, was that um, this man wasn't a believer, that they had been witnessing to him over the years, and the, I think the family, the children were, and the wife. But So first of all, I have great hope in the fact that God is just, because if God is not just, then I am doomed. And we're all doomed if God is not just. And his, his justness is not something he explains, which is interesting. If you said the same language to Paul and in Romans uh, 9, he would just sit there and say, who are you to ask or who am I to ask? And the reason he says that is not to be offensive, but just to sit there and say clearly, like, we don't know and we're not given the information. However, the good news is not just the gospel itself, but the good news of the good news is that he had heard it, that he understood, that it was in his mind. So I find hope in the fact that if anyone has heard the truth, uh, and even though on the outside, because the human heart is so stubborn, is so, so stubborn and prideful, that what we don't know that transpires in the moments before someone's passing, in the moments where if, for instance, you said it was a stroke that he died of, if there was some kind of precursor symptom that alerted him to the fact that this was going to be a stroke and he was cognizant of that, that God would have granted him time to recall what you told him and what he knew and that he would even have time to repent though we may have never known his repentance. And I cling to that. It's more troubling, of course, to me to think of those who have never heard the gospel. And yet, even then, I don't know who has never heard the gospel or who has not. So 
I think the hope of the Christian is that God is fair and just. He is loving. He loves those who love him and whom he has chosen. If he has chosen not to choose, then that's his prerogative, and we have to submit. But if he's heard the gospel, and some of you know that your, your loved ones have been here at Grace Church for many, many years. They've heard the gospel. They've, they've been taught. They've been in um, classes like this one that they have the hope that even the average unbeliever doesn't have. Um, it even says in 1 Corinthians 7, again, about children, that if you have just one parent that's in a Christian household that is a believer and the other parent isn't, that the children are considered holy meaning that there is some kind of uncommon, common grace that's granted to the children that doesn't save them, but puts them in a position that's different than the rest of their friends. So you, your grandfather was surrounded by believers and had people in his life that knew the truth, whether he was obstinate, did not want to believe, whether he even protested verbally, our hope is in the God who might have saved him if he reached out because at least he knew the gospel. I hope that helps. Okay. Well, let me pray. Father God, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the questions that have been asked. And Lord, we obviously come to you because you are the answer that we seek. Not even the individual answers that we might offer to you, Lord, though we do know you hear us and that you listen to our prayers and that you love us. And that in and of itself is so unbelievable to us. But yet we come to you for the answer of you to know you and to love you and to understand that you walk with us and that you are with us through your word and you speak to us through your word and you give us the encouragement that we need. So bless those who had questions even that they could not ask. Bless the answers, I pray, according to the fact of the scriptures, if they accord with your truth. And let us leave even this day knowing that there are those among us who have true pain, who have true sorrow, who have true obstacles in their life and confusion, and that we might be ministers to them and help to them, for we love them in Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. All right, see you next week.